that's really important because uh, what we're going to talk about this week is going to have implications for next week. Next week's going to really shine some light on what we talk about this week. And so I'll just give you this little precursor. Um, if you know me, you know I'm a, I'm a grace guy. Um, I definitely lean that direction. But Jesus is going to talk about our relationship to the law, the Old Testament law today. And I'll give a little bit more explanation on, you know, what that is and what that means. Um, but, but just keep in mind, if you know me, you know I'm a grace guy. And the New Testament is all about God's grace for us. So I just want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we're, as we're going along. Going along. Uh, have you ever had a situation where you just didn't know what to do? Like maybe there's like a fork in the road. You got to go right or left. You got to choose one or the other. And you're just like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. And this is what happens whenever my wife so graciously volunteers to help me with a project. I'm sure that in your marriage, if you're married, when you do a project together, I'm sure it goes flawlessly. Um, not always the case for us. And because uh, mostly it just ends with Brandy yelling at me. Like she's just always mean to me. Um, somewhere along the way, she usually says, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Uh, and that's cool. Uh, but wouldn't it be great if God would sometimes just say, hey, this is how you should feel about this. This is what you should do in this situation. You're like, God, would you just tell me what to do? And in my experience, he doesn't usually do that. Um, because it turns out he's interested in developing my character. Um, sometimes I wish he wasn't. I wish he would just tell me what to do, but he doesn't usually. So today we're going to continue on our, our series that we've called Flourish. Really what, it, what we're addressing in this, ser this series is how Jesus is saying, if you build your life on this foundation, it's the best path for you to flourish and have the kind of life that I've designed you for. Today, we're only going to look at four verses. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a lot of really explicit instructions on how to live and think as a child of God. It's one of the few times where in the Bible, it actually does tell us, just do this in this situation. But no, it's not just about the behavior. It's about the condition of the heart, how to build your life on this solid foundation that will endure the hardships that are going to come our way. And it will also, on the other side of that, it will elevate and add value to uh, the good parts of life. It will add purpose and meaning to our lives. So before we get there, let me do this. I want to read for you three other verses. Okay, now, there are hundreds of verses in the Bible that angle toward this end, but I just want to see if you can draw out the common thread. Okay, uh, Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I hope at some point today, you all get as excited as they just did. <laughs> delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart, is what it says. Nehemiah 8.10 says, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Psalm 1611 says, your, says, you, God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Okay, I could literally spend the rest of our time reading hundreds of verses that, that are speaking to this same end. But let me just ask you this question. Does it sound like God is trying to give you something or take something away from you? When he says, delight yourself in me and I will give you the desires of your heart. When he says, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. When he says, I will make known to you the path of life. In my presence is fullness of joy. It doesn't sound to me like he's trying to take something away. 
It sounds to me like he's saying, hey, come this way. This is, this is the way that I've designed for you to live. God's offering you something better. He's offering us something stable, something solid, something real, not trying to take something away. So here's where I'm at. It's never been more important for us to take the word of God with seriousness. It has been historically very easy in our society to just be sort of a casual church attender and just have Jesus be like this accessory that you sort of tow along with you sometimes so when you need to pull out your Jesus card. That's not going to work anymore. The, the stable norms of the past are being completely eroded all across our society. And those who are not on a solid foundation are going to be blown by the wind. They're going to be wrestling with anxiety, uh, trying to find security in getting more um, they're going to kind of do this, uh, this dance that's happening right now, just trying to find safety in politics and social causes and in success. And Jesus is saying, this is the way. Follow me. And as your pastor, I just want you to know I'm taking my job really seriously right now when it comes to the word of God. Because we need to be on a solid foundation. And this is one of those situations where Jesus just tells us what to do. Get on this foundation. God's offering us something better. So I'm serious about being a church with a foundation on God's word, and I think all of us are going to be better off for it. So if you have your Bible, or if you have a Bible on your device, which I know you do because I'm friends with most of you on the Bible app, you can go to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, I'm using the ESV. There are different translations. Um, uh, they say the same thing, but there's different methods of translating um, ancient languages, and that's why you end up with different translations. The ESV is very much a, uh, a pretty literal word-for-word -word translation. So it's not always the easiest to read, but it's very consistent with the original language. That's why I'm using it. So um, at the start of Matthew 5, Jesus leaves the crowd, right? He's, he's been ministering to this massive crowd of people. He leaves the crowd, and he goes up on the hillside. Uh, we've talked about that the past few weeks. And in verse 1, Matthew 5, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Okay, now this is not our section for today, but I just want to point something out. The word for disciples uh, is the Greek word mathetes. Okay, now it's funny because uh, whenever I put a Greek word in my notes, I always write it out phonetically instead of like writing it how it's actually spelled. And so there's some really obscure, odd markings in my notes sometimes. Uh, but we use this word disciple. Uh, they used it in Greek, and we use it in English in two different ways. The first way we use it is really common, right? The original 12 disciples. When we say the disciples, I think for the most part, people generally know what we're talking about. Even if they're not a Christian, they've still seen the painting of the Last Supper, uh, and they're like, why are they all sitting on the same side of the table? That's weird. <laughs> Most people know that's the disciples. Okay, that's, that's one way we use it. We say the disciples, we mean the 12. Now, at this point, wow, I wasn't really expecting that joke to stick. <laughs> that one was just kind of a brush by. That was free, uh, just on the spot. But I'm glad that landed for a few of you. Uh, okay, so the 12, we, we use the word disciple to refer to the 12. Uh, at this point in Matthew's timeline, actually, the 12 haven't fully been assembled yet. Uh, so it's, it's not using it in that way. It hasn't begun to be used in that way. It's actually using it the second way we use it, which is to mean someone who follows Jesus' teaching, a disciple. Okay, so that's all of us. 
Everyone who follows Jesus' teaching or is a, one of Jesus' pupils is a disciple. This is really the first gathering of uh, the original congregation of Jesus' followers. Probably somewhere between about 100 up to as many as about 200 people have broken away from this massive crowd of thousands and have gone up on the hillside to see Jesus personally. Okay, so I just want to point this one thing out to you. It says that his disciples came to him. His followers, his pupils, the people who knew Jesus, who were following his teaching, they came to him. If you read the chapter before this, uh, you'll see that he's ministering this huge crowd, and the rest of this huge crowd, they, they let him go. Church was over for them. But the disciples went to where he was, and he taught them. In Mark's gospel, you see something really similar happen. Jesus is teaching the crowds, and Mark tells us in Mark 4.34, it says, he did not say anything to them, the massive crowds, without using a parable, but watch this. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. When he got alone with his disciples, he explained in detail to them. Okay, so I'll give you a little, uh, a little trick is for uh, Bible study methods 101. I'm about to save you $2,500 on the class right now. The way this works, this is one of a few really common methods for interpreting and understanding the Bible. Ask yourself a sequence of questions. What did it mean to the original crowd? What did it mean in their context? What's the principle that translates over all contexts? What does it mean in our context? Okay, and there's this sort of illustration that's really common of like a city over here, a big huge chasm, and a city over here, right? So you have their context, the principalizing bridge, they call it, our context. What does this mean in our context? When Jesus' disciples got away with him in private, he explained everything to them. I think you could say it means that Jesus reveals things to us in the quiet of our personal time with him. And when I get into a routine of life where I don't have any personal time, personal time with Jesus, Perhaps that's why I feel so spiritually dry and disconnected from him. This might actually be why God has chosen to reveal himself in the form of a written document, the Bible, instead of just doing massive cosmic miracles for all to see, because he wants personal time with us. And so what I would suggest for us is that we follow Jesus closely, that we be personal with him, that we don't make our relationship with Jesus a Sunday morning virtue that we go to where he is. This is where he does his most personal work. Thank you. I, I receive that affirmation. Okay, so this is where Jesus begins this incredible Sermon on the Mount in the quiet of a personal relationship with his followers. So get this, though. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' followers, this is what he teaches them. He teaches them how to live and think in the kingdom of God. I've had sometimes people will ask, okay, I'm a Christian now, so what do I do? Like, how do I, how do, I do that? How do I be a Christian? Jesus is going to teach us. This, this is how someone who follows me lives and thinks in my kingdom. So you might remember a few weeks ago, he began with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes show us how the values of God's kingdom are completely upside down from the world. He, they show us how God, God's kingdom is a kingdom in which the humble are exalted and what the world considers small and insignificant, God considers praiseworthy and desirable. Then Jesus sets his followers apart by teaching them 
you're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You're set apart. You're, you're not like the rest of the world. You're my followers. We are a people set apart for him. In the beginning in Matthew 5, 17, we finally come around to what I'm actually going to talk to you about today. Now that I've used the substantial portion of my time, Jesus totally shifts gears, totally changed paths. And it's interesting to me. He starts to talk about the law, okay? So if you were just hanging out with some people that you knew and you brought up Jesus or church or the Bible, one of the, some of the first things that people will start to think about is the rules, dogma, church, be good. People will start to think these kinds of things, right? They think religion when you start to talk about your church, about your faith, about Jesus, about the Bible. Now, that reveals a lack of understanding on that part because that person doesn't realize God is trying to give them something, not take something away. Uh, you remember the scene in The Lord of the Rings when, uh, when Bilbo is trying to decide if he's going to keep the ring or take the ring and Gandalf's trying to get it from him? And Gandalf says, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's close to the beginning of the first one, so go ahead and go watch it. It's really powerful stuff. I just picture God saying, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. In verse 17, Jesus starts to teach us how to think about morality, how to think about the Old Testament, the rules that God has laid out. And understand that when he says the law and the prophets, he's referring to what we call the Old Testament. Okay, the commands, the instructions, the prophecies about God's people. Just get to it already, Pastor Kelly. Verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament. I have, come, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law, until all is accomplished. Yeah, there's this, this saying in theological circles that you may have heard Pastor Rick or I use it before. We've both, we've both said it. And it goes like this. The Old Testament conceals the New Testament. The New Testament reveals the Old Testament. Okay? In the Old Testament, the Old Testament is pointing toward Jesus. Now, they didn't know that because they couldn't see the whole picture like we can. But the Old Testament was pointing in that direction, meaning the Old Testament is really only made clear to us once we see who Jesus is and what he has to say about it. There's no way they could have fully understood it at that time. Okay? You know, sometimes people will see something in the Bible that they don't like. Maybe they say, oh, God has a rule about this, and I don't want to live that way. So they'll say something like, yeah, I'm kind of more of a New Testament guy. That's Old Testament. Right? They may not use those words, but you know what I mean. That'll kind of be like their, their general attitude. And their supposition is that Jesus did away with the law of the Old Testament, but very clearly Jesus himself says exactly the opposite. I have not come to do away with it. I haven't come to do away with God's standard. I've come to uphold it or to fulfill it. So what does that mean, that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets? Okay, some people say that it means we no longer have to pay any attention to them. We don't have to pay any attention to the Old Testament, to the instructions that God gives us. We just do whatever we want because grace. We're under grace. Uh, and, you know, that sounds great. That sounds awesome. Uh, but clearly, Jesus is not saying, hey, you guys, uh, Pastor, you know murder, adultery? Don't even worry about it. You just do you. I took care of that. 
clearly Jesus is not saying that. He's clearly not saying, you know what, if you see something you want there, just, just go and grab it. Stealing, not a big deal anymore. I've, I've handled all that. Of course Jesus is not saying that. He's not saying you just do you. As we'll see next week, Jesus actually raises the bar on our morality, not lowers it. So if he isn't saying do whatever you want, then what does it mean that he has fulfilled the law and the prophets? Okay, I want to just show you three ways that Jesus has fulfilled the law and the prophets. The first one is he's fulfilling the prophetic elements of the Old Testament because he is the one that the Old Testament prophets were foretelling. Uh, they, were for, they were prophesying about the future and about this coming Messiah that was going to come and save the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of those prophecies. He is that Messiah. A second way is that he fulfills the moral and legal demands of the Old Testament law in a very specific way. He obeys it. He's the only person who has ever actually obeyed the law perfectly. He has fulfilled the law in that way. A third way that he's fulfilled the Old Testament law is that he's fulfilled the penalty of that law, and he's fulfilled the penalty that the prophets warned about by shedding his own blood on the cross. He has fulfilled the law in that way. But what he didn't do is he didn't abolish God's standard of holiness. He hasn't just gotten rid of it. Uh, that's, that's not what happened, okay? Now, uh, all of that is a little bit academic and maybe even like sort of bad news, uh, but, but it's really important to our understanding of everything else that comes in the New Testament and all the implications for how we live, okay? I could easily spend the rest of our time on those two verses, and maybe I will, depending on how well I stick to my notes, <laughs> but it's just such an important uh, point for us to understand if we're going to keep moving toward the joy that God has in mind, if we're going to move toward what he's trying to give us, we just have to understand, Jesus didn't just get rid of the law altogether. He's fulfilled it on our behalf. And he's beginning to speak about how a Christian should live. So if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, this should be really important to you. The first thing he says is that God's standard is still God's standard. God, God hasn't said, yeah, don't worry about it. You know, I know you can't do it anyway, so just, you know, give up, right? You know, as a parent, sometimes your kid just doesn't get it, and you're like, you know what? Just go play in the traffic. You'll fight. You'll figure it out. <laughs> God just, God, God's not saying that. Uh, I know, Brandy tried that once, and I was like, whoa, you can't just let him. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Jesus says, I didn't come to get rid of the law. He doesn't contradict the law. Grace doesn't abolish God's standard of righteousness. If that sounds like bad news, just hang in there for a couple minutes, okay? Jesus doesn't destroy it. What he did do was he obeyed it, which is pretty amazing because there are 613 of them, 613 directives, laws in the Old Testament. Uh, I am 100% confident that I couldn't even remember them, let alone actually have the, you know, the wherewithal and the discipline and the drive to obey them. It's the only time it's ever happened. He's the only one who's ever fully upheld the law that governs God's uh, standard for the behavior of his people. Okay, this raises another question, though. Okay, because if the rules and regulations are still in place, the problem is there are some that we no longer observe. 
So like an example would be, I'm guessing no one here brought a goat with them to sacrifice uh, because of their sins, right? No, no one here brought a sacrifice for atonement today for Pastor Rick to, you know, put up on the altar and burn. Although, I don't know, maybe we should go back to that. Maybe not. Uh, I'm assuming no one did that, okay? So how do I know then, like, which ones I have to keep, and which ones I'm good. I don't think I have to, like, make an animal sacrifice as the atonement for my sin. So how do I know which is which? Okay, there's a commentator that I love named David Guzik, and he said it, I think, as plainly as it can possibly be said. So I wrote it down so I could get it verbatim. He said, the way you know if an Old Testament law has been brought to completion in Christ and is no longer binding for Christians is... If the New Testament tells you that it has been brought to completion in Christ and is no longer binding for Christians, okay? If the New Testament is clear that you don't have to observe this anymore, there are many that fit that bill, okay? So why don't we bring a sacrifice for atonement to church anymore? The answer is because the New Testament expressly tells us the sacrificial system has been brought to its completion in Christ and is no longer binding for Christians. It tells us that in many places, but just so you don't think I'm making it up, I'm going to give you one of them. He's, Hebrews 10.10 says, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's good news right there. Can I get an amen on that one? I am so thankful that I don't have to watch Pastor Rick dealing with all your animal sacrifices. Uh, that's one of many things I'm thankful for. Uh, I'm so glad that the sacrificial system has been brought to its completion in Christ and is no longer binding on the Christian. The New Testament ex is expressly clear that the demand of that particular law has been met. It's done away with. Okay, now some people will decide uh, there's something in the Old Testament that I just don't, I don't really care for, and so they'll just use the incorrect assertion that Jesus did away with all of the Old Testament laws. Jesus did away with God's standard altogether. So maybe like, maybe they have a sexual preference that is clearly contradictory to what God has instructed. Or maybe they don't want to uh, honor God with their finances. So they'll say, yeah, that's Old Testament. I'm more of a New Testament guy. So we don't have to do that anymore. That's in the Old Testament. But friends, that's either a misunderstanding, which is honest and understandable, that they would have a misunderstanding, or it's a really poor excuse to put myself in the place of God, saying, yeah, I know that's what God said, but I don't want to do that, and this is the excuse I'm going to use. Okay, it's it's got to be one of those two things. The best way to know if an Old Testament law has reached its completion in Christ and is no longer binding on Christians is if the New Testament expressly tells you so. If it doesn't tell us that, then we don't have any reason to believe that God has somehow changed his mind. Okay, now I'm going to give you a little shortcut, a little cheat code, a little pastor cheat code here, okay? There are different types of laws in the Old Testament. There are, um, oh gosh, I, I wrote them down so I wouldn't forget. Um, there's laws governing Sabbath worship. There are dietary laws. There are sacrificial laws. Uh, there's all kinds of cleanliness laws. There are moral laws. The moral laws are sort of our guide for what's right and what's wrong, Okay. The ones that are still in effect, the ones that haven't been explicitly done away with in the New Testament, are generally the moral laws. Those are generally the ones that are still in effect, the laws governing what is right and what is wrong. Okay, so you're free to eat lunch without ceremonial cleansing. 
Okay, those laws are done away with, but you're not free to lie. You're not free to covet or dishonor your parents or steal or murder, okay? The laws that govern what's morally right and wrong, those are still in play for us. It's still wrong for us. Uh, just, just so you know, it's still wrong to lie. It's still wrong to be dishonest, okay? So that's, that's a little cheat code. You don't have to read the New Testament to figure out which ones. The laws governing morality are still in play. Verse 18, this is really interesting. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Not an iota or a dot will be removed. Uh, that's very interesting. I, uh, it's kind of a tricky translation. Uh, the ESV communicates the idea. It's definitely true to the text, but... Um, it says not even the smallest detail of the law will be done away with, right? That's, that's sort of the big idea that it's communicating. Uh, and it's true to the original language, uh, but if you were to use a really strict translation, it's kind of nuanced. It might read something like this. Uh, not a jot or a tittle will be removed. Now you're like, that's fascinating. Um, I find that really interesting. Uh, what's a jot and a tittle, <laughs> right? That's kind of the question. Here's why that's interesting, because a jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. A tittle is a little tiny tail that changes a letter from one letter to the other. So how we might take like a lowercase o and put a little tiny, you know, a little tiny, you know, I don't know, a little tiny line, a dash at the bottom of it and make it from an o into a lowercase a, which could theoretically change the entire word. He's saying even the smallest little stroke of a pen is not going to disappear. So when people are like, yeah, I don't know if God really inspired like the words. I think he just inspired maybe the ideas in the Bible. Wrong. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus said even the smallest character will not disappear from the law. Not a jot or a tittle will in any way be removed. God's law represents God's perfect standard of righteousness. So if we or anybody else change it, then we no longer have the perfect standard. We have maybe something close to God's perfect standard, but we no longer have it as he intended it. And that, friends, is how spiritual abuse and manipulation happen. It's close to what God said, but not quite. We just need to be really careful of that. Okay, When we take what God has said in the scripture and just give it a little spin to make it more pleasing or expedient, we can go all kinds of sideways. That was all just for free. Jesus says in verse 19, moving along, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You know, the point that I would just call out from verses 17, 18, and 19 is that God is dead serious about holiness and about his standard of righteousness. He's not compromising his standard, his perfect standard. Jesus makes it clear in the New Testament that every character of God's law is still in play. I was expecting you all to just jump up with excitement about that, but that's, you know, that's the point that Jesus is making. And then he makes the most preposterous statement um, in the last verse that we'll look at. Verse 20, he says, for I tell you, quick time out, I just want to call attention to something like that. If you read the Old Testament prophets, the prophets um, spoke to the people on behalf of God, they would say, the Lord says, or thus says the Lord, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, I say. 
Okay. Uh, it's a sort of a subtle thing in there, but he's, he's revealing his authority. He's not saying, God, God wants me to share this with you. He's saying, I am God, and I'm, I'm sharing this with you. It's pretty cool stuff, actually. It's, it's pretty amazing. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. Let me just give you a modern example of, of kind of the implications of this, okay? The greatest evangelist of the 20th century was Billy Graham, right? Maybe the greatest evangelist ever, actually. Uh, and uh, he was famous not just for his, like, massive crusades and his public speaking ability, but he was famous for his commitment to integrity and godly character, uh, which is pretty awesome considering how we see the mighty fall day after day in our society. Like, this guy made it to the finish line, right? That's, this is so awesome. The story goes that when his crusade would come to a city, then they would choose a hotel and they would rent the entire floor of a hotel so that he and the other men who worked on his crusade could stay on that floor, um, but none of the women who were part of the crusade would stay on that floor. And the reason is because he wanted to remove any opportunity for anyone to ever make the suggestion that they saw him with a woman who wasn't his wife. So whenever his, woman, his, wife, whenever his crusade would come to town and his wife wasn't with him, they would rent the entire floor. Uh, now, that might be like over the top uh, to some of you, or, and maybe it is, but nonetheless, it's an incredible commitment to integrity. The story goes that he would actually have the hotel remove the TV from his hotel room so that no one could ever make an accusation about his viewing habits. That's, that's a pretty remarkable commitment to integrity. When Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, it would be like me telling you, unless your righteousness exceeds Billy Graham's, you will never go to heaven. And you're probably like, yeah, I'm frying. I'm done. Stick a fork in me, right? Because not only do I not have the resources to rent the entire floor of the hotel just for the sake of maintaining integrity and the appearance of integrity, but I'm really committed to this Netflix docuseries right now, and I'm just not ready to give it up. You know what I'm saying? So when Jesus says, unless you're more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, it would be kind of like me saying, if you're not more righteous than Billy Graham, sorry, but you're out. It's pretty remarkable. It's pretty, pretty crazy. The people of that day must have been kind of distraught at that because the scribes and the Pharisees were the most zealous, devoted religious people alive. We read them, and they kind of get a bad rap because we see the, the friction that they have with Jesus. But to the people, the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones that they looked up to and said, these are the people who are doing it right we want to try and live up to their standard, and there's just no way to beat them at the righteousness game. So what do we do? We can't beat Billy Graham at the righteousness game. What do we do? There's no way we can exceed their kind of righteousness. And the answer is, in order to get past that, we need a different kind of righteousness. And this is where the bad news becomes good news. Okay, so here's, here's a little pro trick for you. The best way to understand a difficult or confusing passage in the Bible is to see what other passages say about it. The phrase theologians use is to say, the Bible interprets the Bible. 
The best way to understand a Bible verse is to see what other Bible verses say about it. Okay, so, so what do other verses in the Bible say about this kind of righteousness that we need? We can't live up to God's perfect standard, but how does the New Testament tell us that a righteous person lives? By upholding the law? Romans 1.17 says, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. There's a new kind of righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the law. Romans goes on to explain that the way we receive that righteousness is by faith in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, God, made him, Jesus, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Jesus took on our sin. He didn't have any of his own. That was really generous of you to give your sin over to Jesus. Way to go. He didn't have any sin of his own, and you shared. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might inherit the righteousness of God. He got our sin. We got his righteousness. Jesus fulfilled the penalty for our unrighteousness when he died on the cross. And by faith in that fact, we inherit his perfect righteousness. If ever there was a time to say, thank you, Jesus, now is that time. That is such, such good news, okay? You can't measure up to God's standard on your own. So he sent his son into the world so that you could receive another kind of righteousness that comes by faith. This is the first and most important step to building your life on the solid foundation. It's the most important step to finding your joy and delight in the Lord. The Apostle Paul said it this way, Philippians 3, verses 8. Uh, the Apostle Paul, we know, other than Jesus, is the most zealous, righteous person who ever lived. He gives this whole list of all his accolades and why he's more righteous than everybody else. It's actually kind of funny. And then he says, I consider all of my good works garbage in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Jesus is calling us to a higher standard, a better standard, a solid standard, but he's provided everything necessary for us to get there for us to know how to live and think in his kingdom, for us to know how to live and think in this age of anxiety and uncertainty where we have more than any society's ever had, and yet we feel more in unstable than anyone else. His instructions on how to live in this kingdom, they show us how to just live in response to the grace we've received. So, like I said before, I'm a grace guy. I think we serve a gracious God, and that's such great news. If what you heard today was be good, try harder, be more holy, I just want you to consider the larger point that Jesus is really making, and we'll expand on it next week. The larger point is that God sent his son into the world to solve our biggest problem, sin. Sin and brokenness has separated us from God. It's created a wall between us and the life that God wants us to have. Jesus isn't saying, be good, try harder, do better, be more holy. What he is saying is, follow me. I'll show you the way. That I can do. Just tell me what to do. And he comes along and says, follow me. Not, here's the 613 things. How about you just follow me? That's such a better way. And the world around is sort of building on this assumption that more of what didn't work before will work this time. 
right? Like if I just get, if I just get a little bit more of all the things that didn't work, right? A little more wealth, a little more security, a little more tolerance. If my guy gets in the office or my girl gets in the office, even better, somehow everything will be perfect. And Jesus is saying, follow me. Just follow me. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, but it didn't fall because its foundation was on the rock. My invitation to you and to this church is to go deeper into his words, further down the path that he's leading on, leading us on, building our lives on the rock, on the solid foundation. Are you with me on that? All right. Let me pray for you. Pastor Rick's going to come, and then he's just going to tell us what to do. Lord, thank you for this incredible foundation, this solid rock that you have offered freely to us, your son, who solved our biggest problem. He's defeated our greatest enemy, and he said, follow me. I'll show you the way. God, I pray that you would just somehow give us clarity in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our heart, in our understanding to see you for who you are and to realize that you're, you're actually trying to give us something, not take something away. God, I pray you give us wisdom and discretion and boldness to follow you, and Lord, that you would fill us with joy in the going. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Rick. Thank you, Pastor Kelly. Yeah.